The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Is there a poster boy for a movement? A leader who can take you from one generation to the next? From fire-breathing gas engines to electric vehicle torque? From one propulsion system to another? Or maybe one era to another? If you need one, his name is Tim Kaniskas. Dodge boss. Car guy. And perhaps the most unlikely guy to take a muscle car brand like Dodge into the next epoch of change. Dodge has been around for more than 100 years, but it's about to go through its largest transformation in its history, moving out of gasoline and into electric vehicles. And if that isn't a culture shift for the iconic American car brand, perhaps Ferrari's move is the only one that could match it. It's rich irony that the original car guy, Tim Kaniskas, is at the wheel. He's the one who started at the dealership level on the shop floor and worked his way up to where he is today, the head of Dodge, and steering the brand to a whole new future. But first, a nod to its present. And that's where car guy Tim finds himself today, standing in front of one of the many garage doors Dodge is unveiling on its final generation of icons, branding them as the last of the last internal combustion engines. And they pack quite a punch. And finally, the Dodge brand announced the next special edition model in its last call lineup with the 2023 Dodge Charger King Daytona. Named in honor of famous racer William Big Willie Robinson, who was an icon of the 1960s and 1970s drag racing scene with his 1969 Dodge Charger nicknamed King Daytona, the 2023 Charger King Daytona honors the original by bumping performance to 807 horsepower and pairing a go-man-go exterior with unique orange interior accents. These so-called last call vehicles are a celebration of the final Dodge vehicles, a nod to the past, and an acknowledgement of what's to come. And Tim Kaniskas is proud of every moment. He grew up within the Chrysler brand, then Daimler Chrysler, then Fiat Chrysler, and now Stellantis. He lives the Dodge brand and is the one reading from the blogs from the diehards about how EVs will kill Dodge or how muscle cars are dead. And he's here today to tell you they're all wrong. He's excited about the new era. Dodge is going all in on electric and has already placed its foot on the EV pedal. The Dodge Charger Daytona is going to redefine American muscle. Right now, things are pretty good in the muscle car space and Dodge is doing well. But the industry is changing and it is changing fast. The industry has invested a half a trillion dollars to transition to electrification. And you know what? Dodge didn't want to follow. Dodge did not want to follow what everyone is doing in electrification. So we literally had to make our own invention, make our own way and start from scratch. We needed a car that looked like a Dodge, drove like a Dodge and sounded like a Dodge at the same time as being electric. On the show today, Tim talks about the changing face of the muscle car era, the resistance of some customers, and the culture of the Dodge brand. He also spends time today reflecting on a rich career filled with many different roles. He talks Hellcat. He talks Eminem. Today on Cars and Culture, Dodge brand CEO, Tim Kaniskas. Hi, I'm Tim Kaniskas. This is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Well, it's not often that we get a guest on the program who likes to blow up engines or can blow up engines or has just blown up engines. 
But if there's any more cultural relevance in America than Dodge, I don't know where it is. He is Tim Kaniskas. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So let's get to it. You, SEMA has just finished recently, and you were going to have a vehicle there. You were going to have a Dodge there that everybody was very excited to see. Only you blew the engine up eight times. <laughs> Tim, yeah. just tell me about that. Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, we we kind of have over the last decade or so that we've been reinventing this brand. We've kind of got a reputation. I probably on accident at first, and it's kind of just morphed into being the real thing now for, you know, having like little teasers and clues and Easter eggs and things like that. And when we announced that it was going to be the end of what we call this muscle car era that we're in today right now with the uh, with the L cars, we talked about how we could not let this go uncelebrated. You know, we couldn't just slowly transition to the next era. We needed to really make a lot of noise and have a lot of fun with this era. So one of the things that we said was we we're going to have seven special editions and we went to speed week and we talked about the special editions and we said, okay, there's going to be six of them that we're going to talk about right now. And there's going to be one seventh one. That's going to be the special one. And we're going to hold that one for SEMA. And at the time it seemed like everything was fine and we were going to make SEMA and we're going to reveal the car at SEMA. Um, but you know, the funny thing is the first six uh, special edition models to close out the last model year were all commemorative. So they were all based on something that came before it. But the one thing that they all had in common is all of them had factory production powertrains. So they had the standard power levels of whatever they were based on. So there was really nothing that was worrying us there with any development time. The seventh one, the one that I said, okay, this is going to be the real special one. This is going to be the last one that we're going to show. We called it One Fast 29. Um, and, and people are like, yeah, maybe you should have... Uh, slowed down on, on the reveal of that car because we were changing the powertrain. Um, it's a powertrain that exists today, but we were trying to raise the power level a little bit. And no secret, it's based on a Hellcat, so supercharged Hemi. And in the aftermarket, and even in the after-sale business with direct connection that we have, turning up the power on a Hellcat is super easy. It's mm -hmm. very, very simple to do. Um, and, and it's very durable as well. But you know... When you do that for a production car that you're going to sell, you have to go through the normal production car durability cycles. So we turned up the power a little bit on it, put it through the normal production duty cycle, which is hundreds of hours, you know, at wide open throttle in a test cell. And uh, yeah, we found the limit. It it, uh, it it blew up seven times in the test cell. And I don't mean spun a bearing. I mean, literally the outside of the engine was, you know, the inside of the engine came outside. It, it literally shrapneled. Um, and so we were worried. So we made some durability changes and thought we were there, took the car out to the track, put it under some real world testing and, and blew up another one. So <laughs> EBD, I, I think we got it figured out now. I think we know, you know, what the problem was. And I think we got it solved. And I think we'll have the car back out and revealed uh, in Q1. But and I, and I tell everybody, I'm like, don't don't worry. We're still working on it. We haven't given up. Um, and at some point, the story of what happened will be funny. Right now, it's not. It's a little embarrassing, but it will be funny someday. Well, if you're going to have an end of a muscle car era in the internal combustion engine era, you might as well blow them up on the way out, right? You know, I'm, I'm glad you said that because the funny thing is, if you're in this culture, if you're into this kind of stuff, they're not they're not upset at all. They love oh. it. They're like, this is great. You yes. found the edge of the envelope and now just turn it back a little bit and everything's cool. 
the people that are not in this space are like, oh, this is this is crazy. This is irresponsible. What are they this doing? This is why oh. we're going to EVs. Yeah. I, <laughs> You're I, like I, Chuck I, Yeager in the 1950s. Like, you don't get it. I mean, we, we have a saying. We want 95% of the industry to ignore us. Mm. We want yeah. 5% to revel in the craziness that we bring to market. And the 95% don't get that blowing up engines is cool. The 5% are like, hell yeah, let's go. Yeah, the 5% are all in. They're they're 100% in on the 5%. What does the end of the muscle car era mean to you personally? Um, I don't think the muscle car era is ending. It's it's changing. And it's changed multiple times. You know, I tell everybody, I said, this is 1972. The only problem is in 1972, we didn't see the end coming. We didn't see the cliff coming. And it, mm-hmm. and it went dark for a long period of time. And it took a long time to really bring back that excitement of the original muscle car era. And I don't call it the golden era, people used to. The original muscle car era, the golden era is actually now, if you think about it, you know, you can buy an 800 horsepower car right off the showroom floor. This really is the golden era. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's gonna change and it, and it changed before. Some of the changes weren't good. You know, we, we went to some things that we called muscle cars and they weren't really muscle cars. Um, and there were some changes along the way with technology. And I always like to, to draw the parallel to carburetors. You know, there was a period of time when people said, you got to have a V8, rear wheel drive, light car, short wheelbase, carburetor, four barrel holly. That's, that's or, or a six pack or whatever, but it's got to be carburetor. And if you think back to 1986, there was a car that came out. And it was the car that all of the muscle car people said, oh, this is the car. It's right. It's light. It's a manual transmission. It's a V8. It's got a Holly four barrels, rear wheel drive, all everything. It's perfect. That exact same car the next year came out. And it was multi-port fuel injected. And everybody said, this is terrible. This is, this is the EPA. This is the man. You know, they're, they're killing our performance. Well, you know what? That car was significantly faster than the car that came before it. And so all the people that said, I don't want fuel injection. I don't want a computer. I don't want big brother looking over my shoulder. All said, wait a minute, that one's faster. Bam. They jumped on the bandwagon. You see it today. Watch YouTube. You see, you see electric cars beating ice muscle cars. Yes. Like crazy. Handily. Yeah. They're yeah. fast. If you've been in a Porsche Taycan Turbo S, you know that there's more, the gravitational forces on that are, are equivalent to, or if not greater than the Saturn V rocket, as an example. Yeah, I, lots of opportunity worried. here. I, I'm not worried about the performance of EVs at all. Now, there's a whole lot of other things that worry me and concern me that we're working on, but performance, which is the cornerstone of a muscle car, check the box. It, that's there. You just got to fix all the other ancillary stuff that goes with it that actually makes it a muscle car. What are the growing pains of that two year wait until you release your first electric car? Um, the growing pain. You got to keep selling cars, right? The, the way that the way that cars are are yeah, when, commonly when, produced. When we did our business plan two years ago, we, we called it the Never Lift Business Plan, and it, it's kind of funny because every major corporation does a business plan, and they do an investor day. And the whole idea behind a business plan and an investor day is to get your investors comfortable in your future so that they'll buy your stock. Well, a brand doesn't sell stock, right? But our investors are our customers. So we said, hey, we got a very important transition here. The biggest transition that this industry has ever seen, seen since we went from horses to cars. And by the way, there's a couple categories that the transition is going to be the hardest, you know, 
Um, muscle cars will be one of them because the muscle car buyer is very focused on ice, ice performance. And for us, big iron block V8 supercharged ice performance in particular. So we said, we've got a tough call to make here. We know the industry's going here. We know we have to go here, but we can't wake up. We can't pretend it's not happening and sell all of the cars as if, you know, the party's never going to end and then wake up in 2024 and go, you know what? Everything I told you for the last 50 years and the car you bought last month, disregard it. I got something better. We, it would be dishonest. They wouldn't believe us. It wouldn't work, quite frankly. Now, it will work with some cars, some cars that are just commoditized A to B transportation and people just want something that fits their needs. That's fine. You can do that. But with this buyer, you got to walk them through the process and get them to believe. And so we, we said, we need soak time. We need soak time. Yeah, we need two years of talking to this customer and not just us, not just us, the factory saying this is good. We need to bring in somebody who's one of them. We need to bring in an ice aficionado who is someone who loves the brand today and give them a peek under the tent on what we're doing so that they're almost like reality TV. They can say, hey, I see what these guys are doing. I'm not telling you to buy it, but I'm telling you, you need to take a look at this and start to think about the process. So by the time we get to 2024, it won't be, hey, look at the new car and it's electrified. It will be, well, finally, I'm sick of this guy talking about it. It's finally here. Let's test it and see what it does. You mm -hmm. know, all that all that learning curve is behind you. So that was the whole idea behind the two-year business plan. And the two-year business plan is really schizophrenic because to your point, I needed to sell ice at the same time. And so that's why we created Last Call. We said, look, we know you're not all going to come. We, we know for a fact that about a third of the industry has said only 5% of the people buy a, a BEV today, the same number of people that are vegetarians. So it's a, it's a tiny percentage of the population that's buying a BEV today. But if you look at the people that say, on my next purchase, would I be willing to consider a BEV? About a third of the industry says, you know what? I'm not telling you I'm going to buy it, but I'm telling you that I will consider it for my next purchase. Now, when you go down to the muscle cars, it's about a quarter of the people that said, okay, I'm if, if it's interesting and compelling and it gives me all the performance and you've overcome some of the hurdles, I'm willing to consider it going forward. Now, if you take all that math, how many people are millennials, how many people are ice, how many, it tells you that not every single person is gonna transition. So we know there's some people that will not follow us. They will not go, at least initially, will not go into electrification. So we said, for those people, we need to tell them, this is it. This is last call. The lights are coming on at the bar. This is your last chance. If you've always hmm. wanted one of these cars, this is your last chance. So it's very schizophrenic. On this side, we're selling special editions, you know, the all these cool cars to celebrate the last call. And at the same time, we're talking about, hey, here's our SEMA car. Here's what the Banshee looks like. Here's how we're going to have the power levels of Banshee. Here's how we're going to let you modify Banshee. And oh, by the way, isn't it cool? You look at that and you go, that's crazy. But there's only 33% of the people, well, actually a quarter, a quarter of the people in the middle that are not sure where to go. The other, the other bookends, the other 75%, they know where they're going. Yeah, you're throwing the kitchen sink, as you have said, at the current in-market cars, and your customers are really expecting that. Are you worried about the customers who won't go with you on that two-year journey or into year three, four, or five, and they go, you know what, this isn't for me? Yeah, you know what, there, there's going to be some resistance on the part of some customers. But what I tell sure. people and what I've, I've told dealers as well, 
because some dealers are also looking at it saying, Tim, I see the customers that I'm selling electrified products to today, you know, with the four by E Wrangler and with the PHEV minivan. They said, I see the percentage of people that are coming in asking for this. And I'm, I'm worried that you guys are ahead of your headlights. And I said, don't worry about that. And the reason is forget about what people are saying, forget about the marketing, forget about all of that stuff. If you look at the future product development cycle, there's take every manufacturer, there's a half a trillion dollars, $526 billion, half a trillion dollars in product investment in electrification. In other words, the pipeline is coming. I mean, this oh, yeah. thing is packed with EVs and, right. and, and the market is just going to be spewed with these things. There's going to be so many choices. And you can't spend a half a billion dollars to make this one look different than this one and this one have a different feature than that one. So within that half a trillion dollars is things that people haven't thought about yet. Like some of the cool stuff that we put on our muscle car, you know, people didn't see it coming. Okay, so we have three patents on our car. That's just Dodge. Think about all the other brands. How many cool things are they working on that nobody knows about yet? So at some point, this stuff's all going to hit the market and people are going to go, man, okay, I still got some reservations, but there's some really cool stuff here that's compelling me. I got to look at this. Hmm. Same thing so, happened with UVs, by the way. You remember what happened with UVs? Everyone drove a car. And now today, yep. you sell four UVs and trucks for every car. car. Cars just went away. People don't want cars anymore. But it happened really slow. It was like, oh, what, a UV, a UV, a UV. And then all of a sudden, it was like a light switch. and Bam. Cars are dead. Well, I remember, Tim, when people didn't even know what SUV stood for. Yep. And in fact, some called it SAVs, if you remember that, because yep. they were an activity vehicle. It was a yep. utility vehicle. And then somehow we morphed to the SUV. Don't we always think that the time that we're in, I'm talking philosophically here, don't we always think that the time we're in is the time that it's that it, that things are going to stay the same and that it's going to be, that there isn't a possible way to see into the next era and I think we only have to go back to the turn of the previous century to say that those, not to sound too um, you know, arcane here, but those who had great horses and great buggies didn't think they'd ever buy one of those gas-powered vehicles. Yeah. I, I mean, it's beta and VHS, right? You remember? Yeah, right. Uh, and, 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 and we're living Blackberries that Blackberries right and iPhones. Yeah. And, and, and we're living in that right now. And I don't worry about it because, you know, maybe I'm weird, but- I truly believe that my job, the only reason that I get paid is not because I can make some spreadsheets and some PowerPoint, and, you know, whatever. I truly believe that the reason that I have a job is because I believe my job is to burn the boats. The, you burn the boats and you have to force the future because the only thing that creates value is creation, not valuing the compliance. And if you value compliance, all you're doing is looking back. If you burn the boats in value creation, you're going to miss. You're going to screw some stuff up. There's no question. I've screwed up a bunch of stuff. Most <laughs> of it I've chosen to forget. <laughs> people tend to gravitate towards the things that worked, you know? So yes, they do. You got to keep swinging. Keep burning the boats, keep tearing it up and starting over. Let's talk about your pathway. You know, and when you look at the uh, Tim Kaniskas bio, you, you kind of started in a place that was, can I say it? It was relatively modest right? You, you started right on the kind of the shop floor to some extent. You started in that, in that zone, in that, in, as, a, as a regional guy selling cars. Yeah. I, you know, it, when, 
when you spend time in Detroit, you think that the whole world understands the auto industry, but I didn't grow up in Detroit. I right. grew up in New York. And so when you grow up outside of the Motor City, the car business is dealerships because that's what you know about the car business. You have all these dealerships around and they're selling cars and, and you don't see the big machine behind it, right? You don't see the manufacturing. You don't see the headquarters. You don't see all that stuff. So when I first got my first taste of gasoline and I drove my first car, I said, this is it. This is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be in the car business. What was that car? I don't car? know what that means. I'm sorry? What was that car? Oh, man. It's funny. Uh, when I was going to get my first car, I had a budget of $700. And it's, it's funny to say that today. $700 was my budget of what I could spend. Now, I could have, this is a long time ago. Uh, I'm not a young guy. Um, I could have got an okay used car. Okay. For 700 bucks. But I don't want just a used car. It's just like the stuff that I do today. I wanted a Firebird. That's it. I want a Firebird. Camaro or a Firebird. I was fine. Just an F body. You know, needed to be that though. But 700 bucks did not buy you a good one of those. I was so going to say, what, what year was that Firebird? <laughs> yeah. So 1977. And man, was it a piece of crap. But it didn't matter. <laughs> It didn't matter. It was a Firebird and holes in the floorboard. The quarter panels were falling off of it. And uh, and I loved that car. The only thing I didn't love about it was it had a small block in it. And I told my dad, I said, like, it's all I can afford. Got a small block in it. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to save up and I'm, I'm going to get a big block. I'm going to put a big block in there. And my dad wasn't in the car business. He wasn't interested in cars at all. I said, that, that's ridiculous, kid. This is all you can afford. Just drive it. It's, you know, it's fine. You know, if, if something breaks, we can talk about it then. So, of course, what did I do? I drained three quarts of oil out of it, took it down the highway, blew the engine up, said, well, bro, got to fix it. Got to put a new engine in it. So that, you, were blowing engines. Got... you were blowing engines then. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that was that was my start. And uh, went to the junkyard, got a uh, uh, Pontiac Catalina station wagon, took the 455 big block out of that. Um, of course, it didn't. It, it, you know, it didn't fit under the hood because I put a high rise intake on it. I mean, it was a learning experience. It was a nightmare. Uh, but ever since then, just absolutely obsessed with this business and, and how I was going to be in this business somehow, some way. So uh, my intention was was always to work in a dealership and then ultimately maybe someday uh, be able to own a dealership. Oh, you were going to be a car dealer. Okay. Yeah. And what would and what would you have done if you if you weren't a car dealer? Well, you know the the funny thing is, so I worked in the different departments. I worked in uh, worked in service for a long time. Worked in sales, and and I learned a lot in every one of those departments. And one of the things that I, that a guy taught me, the first sales manager that I ever worked for, sat me down, and he said, "Look, I get it. I see your personality. You're trying to learn these cars. You're trying to learn the product. You're trying to sell the people on, you know, what this product is. Let me tell you the most important thing in this business. The most important thing in this business is our dealership here buys the cars from the manufacturer." The guy down the street buys the cars from the manufacturer. The guy across town buys the cars from the manufacturer. We all buy them for the same price. So our price is all the same and our cars are all exactly the same. The only way you're going to succeed in this business is if you can sell the customers on you and your dealership, this dealership, and why we're different, why we're better, and why you should buy here. It's the difference between the product as a commodity and the experience of the ownership. And I've never forgotten that. And it is, it is something that to this day drives me. And we call it the last 10. You know, we always say, look, a 90% in school gets you an A, a 90% in the real life 
is completely forgotten. It's that last tenth. It's that last push. That's that differentiator yep. that gets people to remember um, what you're doing. So, so I learned that, and then I worked on the the fixed op side, and I worked in parts and I worked in service, and th- and that's when I came to the factory side because that's tough. I love it. I love working on cars, but don't get me wrong. It's a very complicated business. You 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 got to really be up on your training. You, you got to really know what you're doing. And on top of that, it's tough work. And I remember one day I was working on an engine and that was hot. It's hot day out, sweating under the hood of the car. And uh, this guy rolls up in a brand new Corvette. I'm like, who's this guy? And it turns out he was the factory representative. Now, remember, I'm not in Detroit, so I don't even know what a factory representative is. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Who's this guy? And so I, I meet the guy, find out what it's all about, find out that we have, you know, regional offices around the country. I'm like, okay, that's it. I got my new life plan. I, I can I can exist in the dealer environment or I can exist in an environment that's that's you know got a little bit more span. So I gotta I gotta figure out a way to get there. So you got there and then you worked your way up through the la- up up the ladder through the company. Eventually you're running Maserati at one point, you're running Alfa Romeo, you're in charge of Fiat. What an experience. You know, I I, I tell everybody I've run every single brand in the company except for the half brand. And the half brand, I, I, I jokingly say that um, as Ram, because, you know, when when we had the merger with Fiat, Sergio came in and he said, I don't understand the brand positioning of Dodge. We have all these different cars and we have trucks and commercial vehicles in there. And in Europe, trucks and commercial vehicles is big business and it's completely separate. Uh, and he said, this makes no sense at all. We've got to split out truck and commercial vehicle. We've got to create a standalone brand and we got to call it the Ram brand. And to this day, some people, you know, still call it the Dodge brand, but whatever. It was highly successful for Ram to do that, to split it out and be a separate brand. Um, and, you know, looking back, it was absolutely the right decision. It was super helpful for that brand. If you look at, at Dodge, he jokingly used to say, I want to see if the stump could survive, kid. Uh, and stump survive means I'm, I'm going to cut off your arm. I'm going to take away all your volume and all your profitability, which was truck. And now your PL is going to be terrible because I took that away. Let's see if you can survive or if you're going to become Plymouth. Um, and so that's really what necessitated the change in positioning for the brand. If, if you fast forward through the process. Could you imagine your pathway from that dealership floor to the company, you know, the factory, to running all of these brands and now being at the center of the Dodge culture? No, absolutely not. I I was just very, very, very lucky um, that I worked for some people that were open to, you know, some craziness and to somebody that was just trying to, to, because what inspires me is creating things. And so I worked for a lot of people that said, okay, he's a little nuts uh, and he's always looking at things differently. But you know what? If one of those things works out, it, it's okay. So we can move forward. But but your question on running the different brands, it, it's funny because I always think about my last 10 years being all Dodge. But you're right. During that period, I ran a bunch of other different brands, but almost uninterrupted through there. I always had Dodge and the other ones kind of came and went, usually in like six month spurts. And it was always during some sort of a transition. You, you've seen, 
you've seen hundreds of executive shakeups. And it seems like every time there was some sort of an executive shakeup and there was something that needed an interim focus, I would always get the interim, okay, go work on this for, and it was always go work on this for three months. And three months was never three months. Three months was five months and then six months and then nine months. <laughs> yeah. and then, but, but, but Dodge never went away. So it was always in addition to. Dodge um, was the thread throughout the whole thing. But but it was a it was an amazing amazing experience because the first the first brand that I worked on was was Chrysler and and you'll remember this there was a there was a funny period of time with with Chrysler and it was in 2010 I think it was 2010 I desperately wanted to work on Dodge and I was telling the CEO that I wanted to work on Dodge and he loved um, Chrysler and he's like no 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 I, I Dodge is Dodge is over here it's fine you work on Chrysler. Um, and so we were changing the positioning of Chrysler. And if you think back, it was during the time we had, you know, Eminem. Yeah, so the 300 Dr. and imported from Detroit. Dr. Dre imported from Detroit, all that it's a stuff. a hot brand. If, if think, about, think about the thread, though. This is interesting to look back. I was looking over the fence at Dodge and I said, man, there's some hidden gems in there. This is Charger. There's a Challenger. There's a Durango. There's some attitude in there that, that could really be exploited, but it wasn't being exploited at the time. It really, it was focusing on, on Avengers and caravans and things like that. And, and don't get me wrong. It was at the time, the right strategy, because they were selling tons of cars, but I said, I, I want to do that. And so that's when we came up with the S models, which people at the time were scared to death of. They said, that's not Chrysler. Oh my God. They, they did amazingly well. They still do really well. And that was Eminem, Dr. Dre, Beats, all that stuff. And so if you think about it, all that was is a guy looking over the fence at Dodge going, Hey, they're not using that toy. Let me take that toy and put it over here and see if it works. And it was working. Um, and, and then in 2013, I went over to Dodge. So, could you ever have imagined Eminem being uh, uh, symbolically, you know, culturally significant for Chrysler? No, I and, and you know that one I won't put my hands on it at all. That is the person who is absolutely off his rocker on one hand and an absolute genius on the other hand, who, you know, Olivier Francois, that, that was a hundred percent, you know, yeah. his baby, his vision. Head of marketing. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, the, the things that he did with that campaign were just benchmark in every way. Yeah. That's so true. Still, still to this day. And when, uh, when that song comes on, of course, you know, everybody thinks of the Chrysler commercial, yeah. which is pretty funny. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Dodge brand CEO, Tim Kaniskas. And to see my interview with Tim, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 75 episodes. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now the continuation of my conversation with Dodge brand CEO, Tim Kaniskas. And to see my interview with Tim, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Please like and subscribe to see some 75 episodes. What's the culture of Dodge? Where does that sit today, Tim? You know, I would, I would describe the culture of Dodge. And uh, 
I don't know if it's a disparaging word or not, but people internally sometimes call it the Dodge Mafia because it's a very close knit team. Um, and it's a team that really looks out for each other because think about where we are in this, this company with 14 brands. And just in North America, you've got, you know, in one showroom, four brands and Ram and Jeep are significantly bigger volume than Dodges. So Dodge is the more scrappy, smaller brand within the company. Um, so we have a close knit group of people and we live by a philosophy that we call publisher parish. And it is a stolen line from, you know, academics and it's just keep pushing that envelope, just keep pushing for that last 10. And it doesn't matter what size you are. It's going to work out because volume times margin always at the end of the day pays the bills. So if you can make more per car, it doesn't matter that you sell less cars. So uh, today we sell, we sell 250,000 cars today. We used to sell 500,000 five years ago, when, uh, four years ago. So we've cut our volume in half and we make significantly more than we used to. Not because we're smart. It's by focusing on that last 10th and building value. Well, you have an amazing young demographic too. Uh, and you know this is all obviously related to all electric Dodges in the future. But what I found really interesting, Tim, is that you look at the demographic profile of Dodge now, I'm surprised. How where where you're hitting? I I I I wouldn't have put it as young as it is. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. Nobody ever everybody if if you're not in this industry, you say who buys a Dodge, you always think it's a, an older male buyer, right? right. Like, oh, muscle right. car, that's muscle car. Yeah, and, and and when you tell people you have the youngest demographic in the industry and the highest percentage of millennials in the industry, people are like, ah, can't be. And then and then you break it down even further, and you go, oh, and the one that's driving it the most is the four door Charger. But, but if you step back and think about it, I mean, that demographic is always looking for something that wasn't what their parents did. This has never changed. Every generation looks back at their previous generation and says, no, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to be my own person. And so when we crafted the positioning of the brand, we said, look, we're going to be America's pure muscle performance brand, but performance is defined by our attitude. It's not by your quarter mile time or your zero to 60 time. It's by the attitude of the brand and building this thing that's bigger than selling a car. We say all the time, I'm not trying to sell you a car ever. I'm trying to invite you to a party. I want you to wow. join the brotherhood. Hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're buying a Pentastar or a 5.7 Hemi or a 6.4 or a 6.2 or a Red Eye or a Demon or whatever. You're part of this group of 13 million people that love this brand and it's not about buying a car. What did the Hellcat do for you? Oh, the Hellcat, the Hellcat was. It got a lot of headlines when it came out for good reason. Yeah. yeah. The Hellcat, you know, the funny thing is if you think about the cars, when we end this era, we will have sold, call it, call it 3 million muscle cars. By the time we, we stop producing that car that we know today in Brampton, we will have sold 3 million muscle cars and a billion horsepower. And so <laughs> a billion horsepower, what a measurement. <laughs> it's, and so everybody looks at that and says, wow, 3 million, 3 million muscle cars. It's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. Hellcat, Hellcat, Hellcat. And so, well, hang on. Out of the 3 million, 80,000 more Hellcats. And the reason for that is, I mean, it's a tiny percentage, really, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is, is our whole sales strategy is not, you know, the, the traditional sales strategy was good, better, best. 
I'm going to tell you the price point of the entry-level car, but you're not going to want the black bumper, so you're going to step up to the next car and yada, yada, yada. We do the exact opposite. We sell from the top down. All we ever talk about is red eyes and demons and hellcats and all this stuff, and we want you to get excited about that and then buy through the lineup. So Hellcat was critical for us because it helped us sell from the top down. It helped us leapfrog where everyone else was in the competition. Because you think about it, before we had Hellcat, we had the 6.1 um, SRT, 425 horsepower when we launched that car. And we were actually underpowered to the competition and bigger and less brake than the competition. So, so we weren't really super competitive right out of the box. And so Hellcat helped us leapfrog into that space. But it was way more than, than horsepower. It was way more than the 80,000 that we will have ended up selling during that period. Because if you really tracked that car, when we first started selling or first started talking about that car, that car was called the SRT, the supercharged SRT. It was not called a Hellcat. Absolutely was not called a Hellcat. Didn't have a Hellcat logo on anything. Hmm. And there are people that have the badge that says supercharged on it because the first cars that came off the assembly line didn't have a Hellcat on it. Didn't, didn't weren't called that, didn't have it. And they just had a supercharged badge on it. So the pre-production cars, some people got a hold of those badges and someday those badges will be valuable. What we decided to do was, I, I remember distinctly, Bob Lee was the head of uh, uh, Powertrain at the time. And I happened to be in a meeting and we were talking about the development of the car. And we, of course, just like you know, brand people do, we were pushing them, you know, we need more, we need more, we need more, we need more. And he, in the conversation, said the word Hellcat. And Hellcat was the code name within his team developing the engine privately. It wasn't in any of the documentation. It was just the code name that they called the car. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa what did you say? Now, Hellcat was the name of a plane. And Bob was a huge, he was really into the old military planes. And so he always named the things after old military planes. That's why you had Apache and things like that. And I said, well, Hellcat, that's an amazing word. What is that? And I wasn't familiar with the aircraft. I don't know. I just love the word. And I became obsessed with the word. And so we quickly started working on what does a Hellcat look like? What could it look like? And the guys in design, they were going crazy because we went through so many iterations of that logo. It's mind boggling how many iterations of that logo we went. And by the time we finally settled on it and got it done, that's why if you look at the first generation Hellcats, the logo is just a little plastic flimsy little badge on the fender because we had no time. There was no time left. We made the quickest, cheapest, fastest badge we could make. And literally in some cases had to ship them to rail yards and have them put on at the rail yards and at oh, dealerships wow. and things like that, because it was that late. Wow. Um, but the reason that we did that, I'm getting back to the point. The reason that we did that is because it goes back to that idea of not selling you a car selling you in, or giving you an invitation to our party. And the key to doing that is to create attachment with the product. And attachment with the product comes from visual, visualization of what the product represents for you and how you can communicate it to other people that you're talking to about. You can't say, hey, I got the 3XLE. What the, I, 3XLE, what the hell is that? Oh, I got a Hellcat. Oh, got it. I got a scat pack. Got it. I got a Demon. Got it. I got a Red Eye. Got it. I mean, you tell a guy that's got a that it's got a red eye. Oh, I like your Hellcat. He's going to stop you immediately. You know, it's not a Hellcat. It's a red eye. Why is it red eye? It's got 100 horsepower more, and I paid 10 grand more for it. It's a red eye. Don't call it a Hellcat. Um, it's that <laughs> it's that visualization. It's that attachment that makes that brotherhood. It makes that bond 
amongst these people. So yes, it was amazing because it leaped product performance. Yes, it was great because we got all these headlines on it, but it was really the start of that creation of visualization and attachment that from there we went to Scat Pack. And Scat Pack to me is probably the best example ever. Scat Packs are fastest turning, highest volume car that we have today. Do you know the Scat Pack existed before the Scat Pack existed? No. Absolutely identical car. Sold about 1% of our mix. We changed it to Scat Pack, put the logo on it, created visualization and identification and went from 1% to 40%. And now it's a, now it's its own private party. Yes. You, you have a very exclusive private party that's happening now. You're inviting folks to an ultra exclusive party as gasoline engines disappear from the field. And you're doing a series of one-offs which are very hard to get. There's a lot of attention around them. Tell me about those. Um, when you go to, it was back to the idea of, hey, it's the last model year, we got to celebrate it. So, so we created all of these different commemorative versions. And, it, and if you're a hater, you'll call them you know, sticker packages and things like that. If, if you're into this community, you look at it and you say, no, every one of these represents a car, commemorates a car that came before it. So it's really cool. Um, one of the things that we probably honestly underestimated was when we made the volume so low, the demand that it was going to create, you know, the supply and demand dynamic, it's, hey, it's the last year, and oh, by the way, they're only making 300 of these, and oh, by the way, there's only one color, and like, oh, God, it, and it created this, this feeding frenzy that I'm hoping dies down very soon. Um, because <laughs> what a problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> it's driving people crazy. And, and so we created that thing called the uh, the horsepower locator, because we're hoping that if people have total transparency and total visibility to where every single car is going to be, it helps level out that supply and dynamic supply and demand dynamic. Wow. And you have some favorites in that mix? Um, well, yeah. Number seven that, that we can't get to stop blowing up yet. <laughs> Once we figure <laughs> that out, that will be my favorite. Oh, that's amazing. When you think about how much in a kind of a post-COVID world, and I know that this is at the center of, of, of your mind, probably on a daily basis, in a post-COVID world, the inventory supply demand scenario that exists now in the in the consumer space, right? Two things are going on. There's not there there aren't enough vehicles out there. You know, you you can't make them fast enough to some extent, neither can anybody else. And you also have a customer that's willing to wait for vehicles now. Tim, in all of your years of being involved in the sales side of the business, could you ever have predicted that this would happen? This is almost like a European type stuff. I'll wait a year for my car and I'll pay full sticker. Yeah, I, I would have bet against this. If we were talking about this three years ago, I would have said, no, this industry works with 60 days of stock on the ground, another it's 30 kind of days inbound. And if you don't have that, you're going to lose business and on and on and on. I don't think, I hope, I don't believe we'll ever get back to where we were before because this model is so much more efficient. Um, it can be frustrating for customers, but some of that's on us. You know, we had built-in complexity in the industry based on that instant availability of cars. And now when you don't have the instant availability of cars, we've got to get much better on our, our complexity and our turn rate and our shipping and things like that. Uh, but we'll work through that. And when we work through that, this is a way better business model. It's a way better business model for the manufacturer. And it's a way better business model for the dealer as well. You know, when interest rates are up and they're carrying, you know, 500 cars on the ground, that's a huge expense for them. So this model is way better for them and ultimately will become way better for the customer as well. Will that change the culture of car buying or has the culture of car buying changed the, the, the shop click buy piece of this? 
Yeah, I, I think I think it will, and it, but it depends on what the product is. You know, there's certain products where you can get um, really low complexity, and and it'll be it'll be okay. If you look at things like our highest line Hellcats and things like that, you know, today it's it's not abnormal to have a huge number of sold orders and people waiting a long time to get their cars. Those cars, we always ran 20, 25% sold orders in an industry that was running 2%. And the reason for it was, is that guy that was going to spend $90,000 on a Dodge muscle car, he didn't want to buy it off the lot. He wanted the orange one with the black seats, with the wheels he wanted. I mean, he wanted the way he wanted it. And if he had to wait for it, so be it. He was going to wait for it. So yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to change how we do everything going forward. And I think it's going to drive some changes in the industry as a whole from, uh, you know, the way, the way we build stock and transport cars. I, I think that model will change. Now, I don't think we'll get all the way to the European model, but, but we'll get a hybrid in between. Let me ask you about a couple of final things here. When the Challenger and Charger and Durango end production as we know them, what are you going to miss the most? Um, I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I'll miss the cars because I love the cars, but you know, I, I have the luxury of seeing the future. I have the luxury of seeing the things that are coming. So I get excited about it. You know, I, I remember at speed week, whatever that was August 17th, I think it was when we pulled, uh, we pulled the, uh, LB out the Daytona Banshee out for the first time and forget about whether you like electric, don't like electric. I remember watching the facial expressions of the people like, Holy shit. They just did a 1968 charger. Yeah. So there, there's some things coming, um, that I think are really exciting for the future. And, and we've got some hedges in the system that make it okay for the customers that, that we haven't shared yet. So it, it's going to be okay. I, I'm excited about the stuff that we're working on right now. And when, if we were to have this conversation, you know, five years from now, three years from now, and now all of a sudden, you know, the, the business plan that you're in now is over. We've, we've transitioned to the new business plan. What are the characteristics of a Dodge that will be readily available to everybody? Yeah, it, that, um, that's a great question because we're super focused on that. When, when we're working on a new product, we don't look for just an opportunistic market share grab because we say, I have no interest in buying market share, investing in something to buy market share. I want to cultivate mind share. And in, our, in order to cultivate mind share, you've got to have a very compelling proposition. And for us, compelling proposition is defined by a couple of things, four things actually. Got to look like a Dodge, sound like a Dodge, drive like a Dodge, and feel like a Dodge. So everything goes through that funnel. Hornet's a great example. You go into a segment where it's a compact UV. The compact UV buyer is buying for very rational reasons. Price, value, fuel economy, period. Dodge does not belong in that space at all. We just don't. I mean, we don't sell a single car that anybody needs. We try to build cars that people want. Nobody needs any car that I sell today. Just don't. So why would you ever go into that space? The reason that we went into that space was we said, look, we got a great platform here. We got a car that, that has a really cool look that we can make look like a Dodge. It's got really great handling characteristics. We can really capitalize on this and we can do something when everyone else is going right in that segment for price value fuel economy and 27 guys want to all compete with each other. I want to go into my own sandbox and say, I got something different that you're going to want to come. But to do that, does it look like a Dodge? Does it sound like a Dodge? Does it drive like a Dodge? 
is it going to perform? Is it going to feel like a Dodge? Um, the easiest example of that is the electric car. We did so many things on the future Daytona. You shouldn't do. You shouldn't do them on electric car because a lot of things we did don't help you with range. And range is the absolute killer in that segment. When batteries cost $100 per kilowatt hour, you're you never going to sell the car. Yeah. yeah, you can make a mistake on a uh, on a range of a car, which is going to drive a bigger battery pack, and you're going to find yourself waking up one day and you're going to be not fifty bucks, but five thousand dollars higher than the competition. Sailproof, you're dead. Um, but we looked at it and we said, look, we can make a melted jelly bean. We can make a car with you know great range and all that stuff, but it won't pass that funnel of the four things that make it fit a Dodge, and therefore we won't do it. So we're going to sacrifice some range, and it's going to be okay because it's got a through that four funnel. Final thing, Tim, you think about your career and the number of uh, brands that you've been associated with, and and frankly, as the uh, the I would say the head culture creator at Dodge. When you look back and you think about where you are now, what's your summation of your of your time in the business? Um, you know, the the thing I'm the most excited about is if you think about ten years ago. 10 years ago, we were in a really weird position where we had a, a fork in the road. We could either reinvent this brand or we could shut this brand down. It could be Plymouth. And we decided, you know, we're fresh into a new merger. It's a 100-year-old brand. There's no point to shut it down. We can do this. We can reinvent this brand and we can make it something very unique in the industry. But at the same time, that's a really risky proposition. Uh, and so along with me was a group of really smart people, way smarter than me, that helped me do all this. And 10 years later now, most of them are still there and excited about what they're going to launch into the next generation. When I'm long gone, they're going to be there pushing that Dodge brand. So what I'm most excited about is that this core group of people that took a flyer, I mean, they jumped on a burning boat and said, let's figure out how to make this thing work. They're still there and they're going to push it into the next generation. So that that's to me what the most exciting thing is. Well, you said burn the boats. The boats have been burning. <laughs> Tim Kaniskas, thank you so much for being on Cars and Culture today. Thank you, Jason. Thanks to Dodge Brand CEO Tim Kaniskas. And to see my interview with Tim, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 75 episodes. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road.